name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we were going to analyze the impact of technology on politics through the lens of the Western bubble. As always, we were preparing our episode together before recording. However, Walder, today you made a statement that that led to a longer conversation because I wasn't 100% convinced of that statement. And given some of the criticism that we have received in the past from listeners is that we agree too much, we thought, why not record this actual conversation that we are usually having before we agree on something in the episode? Um, so today will be more of an experimental uh, recording instead of the usual thesis we put forward. Please let us know your thoughts on the topic and your reactions to this usual format, um, or unusual format, rather. So, hi, Balder. What was that view that led to this initial conversation? What was so controversial about this? Hi, Lodario. I don't know how controversial it was, but the question of us asking ourselves, what, what do we want to talk about when it comes to technology? We had some initial ideas. Uh, usually when uh, we brainstorm before an episode, we just throw out some basic concepts and some, some basic issues that then can be uh, structured into a full episode. And the, the usual things that would come up in those situations are um, the manipulation because of technology, like it's easier nowadays to uh, manipulate through algorithms. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about Russia trying to influence elections and things like that. Those are common patterns of, of discussion when it comes to technology. And you mentioned, rightfully so, the idea of the CNN effect. CNN effect has put pressure on politicians and leadership to behave uh, in a certain way, with the general public being more critical of their policymaking. All of that's absolutely interesting and fine to discuss. But then I brought up the point of, well, yes, but actually, if you look at reality right now in 2023, politicians seem to be under less pressure when it comes to the actual policymaking. Uh, politicians are under significant pressure when it comes to their own personal behavior, which is good, right? When a politician has been abusive towards staff members or has done something hypocritical, that gets exposed much quicker than before. But actual policymaking is no longer as critically assessed by society. And I argued that that is because of technological change, because there's now this cacophony of voices on the internet, on social media, elsewhere, that drowns out more focused, critical assessment of policymaking. So I actually believe that the, the core behavior of politicians when it comes to upholding the institutions they're supposed to defend and their actual policy implementation is uh, worse than it was before because of technological change. And that's where our conversation started. Because my first concern or question was already what is society in that situation? Because, and here I, I don't have the luxury of comparing it to before. I only know the, the now and maybe 10 years ago. Um, but who in society is holding politicians accountable? Is it the everyday Joe? Is it everyone who's on Twitter? Is it the media? And then what classifies as the media? Or is it the intellectual elites? Well, and that's exactly where this shift has taken place. And I would argue 
from an elitist perspective, no doubt, uh, undemocratically, no doubt, I would argue that the fact that people have more power over the public conversation than in the past, the fact that we've got social media technology to amplify anyone's voices, um, is not necessarily a good thing. It, in fact, it has taken that answer to your question away from well it's the intellectual and media elites that decide what the conversation is about to the conversation is whatever the masses as inspired by algorithms and by chance um, actually want the conversation to be about so if the conversation is about a sex scandal it's about a sex scandal if the conversation is about something else it's about something else but it's no longer a focused criticism of what's really, really important. It's much more random than before. And so this is one of those impacts of technologies that you used to have these gatekeepers, the media and the intellectuals who were determining every morning, basically, open. well, they can't open the news, um, but um, going into the network of journalists, um, what is the big topic of the day? And that would then get printed the next day or be in the evening news that night. So you used to have these gatekeepers, who, see, when I say determined, it almost sounds like a conspiracy theory, but who decided what was the very, what was the important topic of the day. And through the impact of technology and here social media in particular, you no longer have those gatekeepers because now it's algorithms or hashtags who are those gatekeepers and therefore the masses can control them. Plus the, the emotions of the masses, right? It's not just the algorithm that randomly decides it, but it is actually the fact that people who typically don't spend their day thinking about policymaking, they don't spend their day thinking about the subtleties and intricacies of democratic institutions, who have an emotional response to certain things and to other things, which is, I would argue, again, from an elitist perspective, exactly the reason why you don't want to give too much power to those people. Not because they're stupid, not because they're idiots, but simply because it is not their field of expertise to critically analyze policymaking. Uh, it is not, it shouldn't be up to the millions and millions and millions of people who are on Twitter or on uh, Instagram to decide whether a government is doing a good job or not. They can vote every four years and then after that, it is, it, it's up to the politicians plus the intellectual media elites to assess actual policymaking. However, that's completely gone out of the window. And now all those millions of voices actually make it much easier for leaders to get away with bad policymaking by just hitting the right emotional nerve. So how was this then different 40, 50 years ago? Uh, you had media outlets and intellectuals assessing policy and assessing politicians and then that pressure led to change or held them accountable what, what were the mechanisms here because i the mechanism i can think about is uh nowadays someone does something or say something stupid and then everyone gets really angry on the internet and that the original person has to step down yes well <laughs> that's that's exactly one of the issues so it's good it's good if someone says something stupid that they're being made aware of that it was stupid to say and that they shouldn't say it again However, now the reaction is much more aggressive than it was in the past, right? Uh, just an apology typically is not enough anymore. This is where all the debate about cancel culture and all that comes in. Uh, if someone says something that they shouldn't have said in the past, they, they typically would say, look, that was I misspoke, I really apologize, that was the wrong thing to do, and they would move on 
with their job. Now they typically lose their job. Um, I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture of the past. You know, to, to ask the question, what was it like in the past? One thing that was clearly worse in the past is the fact that there was an almost incestuous circle of politicians with media and in intellectuals who protected themselves, right? Who protected themselves from outside interference, outside views into their personal behavior. So there was a lot more abuse on the work floor. There was a lot more uh, corruption, probably. I mean, I'm not. That's not a statement that I can back up with facts, but I would. I wouldn't be surprised if in the past the numbers were much higher when it came to corruption because you had these institutions which allowed people to protect each other. I scratch your back if you scratch my back. Um, so that is something that has improved over time, where people's individual behavior, a minister's individual behavior, business leaders' individual behavior, is under much more scrutiny than it was in the past. However, what was also the case is that there were serious intellectual conversations by people who knew what they were talking about when it came to actual policymaking, when it came to respecting certain institutions. If a politician broke a certain rule, broke the law, they would be kicked out of office by the elites because the elites understood that their responsibility was to uphold the law. Nowadays, you hear over and over again that rules and laws are broken by politicians. And nothing much happens because it gets dismissed as, by, as partisan politics. It gets dismissed as left versus right. It gets dismissed as a personal vendetta. They, because you've got those millions of people on social media pitching in, whereas in the past they didn't pitch in. And so how did the general public react to this in the past? I mean, so you had these intellectuals or these elites and the media having these conversations and then kick someone out for for misbehavior, for bad policy. Um, and then the general public would hear about that on the media and acknowledge it. Keep in mind that they would hear it on the media in a much more you know calm and sort of modest tone, right? It would be through reading a newspaper article or maybe the news on the radio, <laughs> Or the, there wouldn't be this continuous 24-hour flow of information about it where people keep on refreshing Twitter to see what the, the, the latest update is. So people the following day would read about a politician who said something, I don't know, something sexist and has been criticized for that and um, uh, now they have to apologize. Or more importantly, uh, not that there's that's, that sexism on the, in the workplace is an important topic, but from a bigger perspective, more importantly, a politician made a giant mistake when it came to a policy initiative. Uh, millions of euros were wasted or something like that. Um, people would read about that and they would maybe talk to their family about it. They would talk to people in the pub about it. But in the end, they didn't have a direct line with those politicians themselves. They, they relied on the establishment, the media, the newspapers, and maybe the intellectuals writing books, the intellectuals influencing political debate in the capital, and the opposition parties to deal with it. And that would be a much more focused dealing with it because there were only X number of topics that could be dealt with. Whereas now you've got almost infinite amount of topics, infinite amount of voices, infinite amount of people shouting, being angry, being upset, 
And as a result, there is no longer any gatekeeping, any filtration of what actually matters and what is less important. See, and this is one of the parts where I believe that I mean technology has a good impact is you only had three or four topics per week that you could deal with. And now you have a lot more niche topics um, that maybe do not concern the ruling elite in that sense. And here we also talk, I mean, we're talking about all sorts of, 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 of topics, whether it's workers' rights, whether it is, uh, I don't know, sexism in general, whether it's some, some racist tendencies. Um, and now you have, because topics can basically quill up anywhere on social media and then it gets picked up by journalists and get looked into. I think that that's generally something good is that there are more topics overall that are covered and more topics are well are dealt with and therefore more people are held accountable and responsible for that which overall should improve uh, people's lives is if something that doesn't you know it doesn't affect the elites but affects a, a huge chunk of people but it has never been picked up by any of the gatekeepers now it that suddenly receives attention and hopefully is being attended to yeah, so in itself, the, the singular, a singular example of um, a politician now being exposed, which wouldn't have happened in the past, you're absolutely right, for having been abusive towards a staff member. That in that isolated space is good. I completely agree with you. And that you're absolutely right, that would not have happened 40 years ago, or at least would be much less likely to happen. First of all, because there was just fewer, there was less information, going around and secondly even if that information got picked up by a journalist or if that information got picked up by the opposition they would be more careful in exposing the person and as a result you know again a system protecting itself in a single case you're absolutely right that's an improvement but now my question to you is isn't a pro if you look at a thousand cases being exposed at the moment doesn't that actually mean that randomly two or three have consequences, but most of those thousand cases actually go into our brain and out of our brain in five seconds and don't have actual consequences? So it is like a random process. Now you've got this enormous amount of cases that are being discussed, some valid, some aren't, some based on fake news, some actually true news. Everyone throws in their opinion. Everyone for five seconds has something to say about it. In two or three cases, it has the consequence as a, that a politician has to resign, basically because the algorithms picked up on it and everyone, millions of people agree. But in most of the other cases, people forget about it again. And as a result, nobody actually pays attention anymore to what's really important, to the really big stories, to the, to the stories about life and death, about your country being responsible for killing people in Iraq or Afghanistan or the environment or the, the really big stories, it all becomes part of this cacophony of controversy. And if everything is controversial, then nothing is controversial anymore. See, my, I mean, so, so yes, this is, I mean, there are different topics that uh, have different levels of importance, especially on the state level. Um, but my question is, what's the problem if the general population is preoccupied with um, with all these small topics and gets really angry about these small topics because they weren't important in the process before? If before the elites dealt with this and the general population maybe acknowledged this, maybe read about it in the news, then there's no difference 
to today where people just get angry about other things. Um, but I mean, the elites are not really disturbed by their process of holding policymakers and policy accountable. Well, so the, the way it, it used to work was that a bad policy is being implemented that leads to deaths, innocent lives being lost. Journalists write about it and that they know that they've got the backing of the general population because the general population only hears about 10 stories and this is a really big one. So they will talk about this for weeks and it has long-term consequences and the politician is, is forced to change the policy. Or if they don't change the policy, they will lose the next elections because people will remember this because it's only one of a limited number of stories that media have transmitted to them. Now, because all those thousands and thousands and thousands of stories are continuously transmitted 24 hours a day through all types of social media. And every, every time a story like that gets into our brain, we all, you know, it pushes out something else. We only have a limited brain capacity to deal with these stories. It means that we are sort of the magnets for the less important issues. We, we draw them out of the system. Like, hey, has someone said something sexist or has someone said something racist? And the big, big policy items get drowned in that sea of information. And so what you see over and over again over the past 10 years or so is that policymaking in itself is no longer an issue that politicians are really being criticized for. They're being criticized for lots of other things that we the general audience, the millions and millions of people who really have no business in, you know, in understanding policymaking because it's not our expertise, the things we care about are not the things that are really important to society. It's the things that we have an emotional attachment to. Yeah, I mean, I still don't necessarily see how this was different to, to 40 years ago, except that Maybe people kept this in their mind and then voted differently the next election. I don't know. I feel like if there's a, I mean, I see it. This is the difficulty with with uh, with with having this this conversation basically on the recording, is that there's a few anecdotal pieces of evidence that I can now bring up where I feel like, oh, but people have still held to account, um, and then people did come out and and vote to to basically hold them to account. Um, I mean, the easiest one to bring up would be would be Donald Trump. Um, where, I mean, ultimately, the mega attention that social media networks created led to the biggest turnout ever in a U.S. presidential election. And yes, a lot of people still voted for Trump, but ultimately more people voted to get him out of office. Yeah, Donald Trump is a really good example. There is no way that Donald Trump would have even made it through the primaries in 2015, uh, or the Republican primaries, because the establishments... Well, there was a clear Republican establishment that went against Donald Trump, that said this is a man not just when it comes to policymaking, but also with respect to tone and just his own ego. This is not a person that we can ever see as the president of the United States. This is not the profile of a president of the United States. And we're not going to let this man anywhere near the White House. That would have been a conversation within the Republican Party. And I can give you a long list of Republican strategists and Republican leaders at the time, 2014, 15, 16, who actively tried to block Donald Trump. But why didn't get Donald Trump? Why didn't he get blocked? Because of 
the huge flow of social media because the people didn't really care about the long-term policy consequences. People didn't vote for Donald Trump because they thought that Donald Trump would actually implement the right types of policy because people don't know about that because policymaking is hard, it's complicated. What they cared about is a person who seemed to go against the establishment. He felt right to 75 million people in terms of finally someone who just says it like it is, a businessman who goes against the, the elites in Washington. Because they don't actually have that capacity to understand the implication of their vote. And that is something that has changed over time. So I think the fact that you bring up Donald Trump is a perfect example. He would never have been voted in 40 years ago. Exactly. But I mean, don't you think that these people voted him in because that system are of gatekeepers that kept the general discussion away from the population and only brought it up once every four years when there was an election, that that no longer worked for these people? I mean, this is something that we've brought up time and time again in the old episodes is that the establishment has failed. But isn't that, I mean, then isn't that a chance for something new and for something better through social media or through technology in general, is that the elites have not worked for the general public. At least they haven't worked to their benefit or maybe they perceive like they haven't worked for their benefit. And so if they managed to bring out their anger and yes, this happened through technology, but simply because gatekeepers could no longer keep that anger together. So maybe that old system simply didn't work for them. Well, it's absolutely true that that the elites made very significant mistakes. As you said, in, in, uh, we've discussed this over and over again. In the 1990s, this this shift towards managerial style of policy making, of just thinking that ideology and vision were no longer important and it's all just about keeping interest rates low and those kinds of things. Um, that was a huge mistake. I would never, ever argue that the political establishment is faultless. That on the contrary, what I would argue is that now we've lost a corrective mechanism for that. So we no longer have a mechanism to adjust back to to learn the lessons from bad policymaking in the early 21st century and the 1990s, um, because the public now has much more power than we realize. Be, which can be manipulated by some populist leaders, but not by the establishment as a whole, not by the policymakers as a group, only by those by the Donald Trumps and you know those leaders, the Boris Johnsons of this world, the ones that can actually sort of appeal to that social media circus in a way that I would argue more serious politician can't. Um, and... Therefore, now the genie is out of the box and we've got no way to put it back in. So rather than correcting the mistakes, we're now in a world where no longer any serious long-term ideological decisions can be made. No serious long-term policymaking can be implemented because every time that an important step needs to be taken, it will get drowned out by the cacophony of voices. And a very good example, which we talked about briefly before hitting the record button is the environment. You you used, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, but you used the environment as an argument like, look, now we're talking more about the environment. I would argue we talk more about the environment because the effects are becoming much more clearer and the science is ever, ever increasing. And even if the Club of Rome's report of 1975 was pretty good at predicting the problems it wasn't as obvious yet to 
the establishment nor the general public what the consequences were. Now in 2023, it's completely obvious that we're in big, big trouble, that the world is dying if we don't take very drastic action. And yet we're not taking drastic action because we no longer have the mechanism for a leader to say, I'm going to implement a policy that may hurt in the short term, for example, less consumption. We have to consume less as a society. We cannot continue consuming the way we're doing. Because if we don't do this now, 100 years from now, there won't be a planet left. That would be a responsible, serious, at least policy conversation to have, ha to have. But that conversation is no longer possible because it will get drowned out straight away by the insane amount of noise coming from the internet. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, yes, I mean, so, so I brought up uh, that example. I mean, for me, the reason, and this is a bit of, I mean, this is again a bit difficult because you can't really tell why we're we talking more about it now. I think I'm also convinced by the fact that the effects are more visible. I, the, the original thought behind me bringing this up was that five years ago, the conversation was less. And then you had Fridays for Future. You had a lot of the climate movement moving online, a very tech savvy generation that expresses their thoughts and, and opinions in line with all of that science, pushing for politicians to talk about that topic. And then you, you had a noticeable um, and also a proven uh, increase in the popularity of green parties, which then led to a policy change. So for me, you here you you could see a positive impact of technology, where now a social movement could go online and could push for that more and basically push for that. Um, so so that's again that that's why I see it. I see your argument with regards to um, the important conversations being drowned out. Uh, definitely, I see. Your argument with regards to facts being, I mean, contested based on politicization and well, simple fact checking, and I think that is definitely one of these effects of technology. But I'm pretty sure you can also make the other argument: is that by having access to technology, um, by having technology, kind of, I mean, spread information, spread all of that science that we have um, to the general public, pushed for that in 2018, 2019, and then kind of led to the first European, well, to the first Green Deal that one of the big nations or big blocks passed, which was the European Union. Obviously, I would never argue that, that technology uh, overall is a bad thing. I mean, there are loads of positive things about technology. There's no doubt about that. But the mobilization of society uh, for certain causes is actually much less nowadays than it used to be. So what, what early 1980s Europe, uh, what was one really big thing that was obviously inspired by elites who wrote about this, who talked about this, but which affected an awful large segment of the European population, the fear of nuclear holocaust, the fear of nuclear war destroying the whole planet, basically. And as a result, in the early 80s, you had massive, massive demonstrations against nuclear weapons in Europe. And they actually had some policy impact, some policy impact. But they were written about, it was a big deal. For months, it was the main game in town, from a politics perspective. Nowadays, you've got a movement that talks about climate change, that talks about certain technologies. You've got a movement that talks about flat earth. You've got a movement that talks about um, the importance of um, dealing with 
poverty. You've got a movement that talks about conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11. You've got this whole mix of different movements, some of which are a little bit more visible than others, but none of which actually have a significant impact because there's just too much. There is only a limited amount of political space to be critically looking at policymaking. And if you spread it out very thinly over too many things, then the really key issues such as climate change and environmental degradation get drowned out by everything else. In the early 80s, believe me, uh, nuclear weapons wasn't drowned out at all. It was huge and it led to significant policy initiatives. So this idea that by actually giving a little bit less of a daily voice to the people in the end means that the people in the past had less to say about the important issues is actually not true. It's just that they are they don't have access to date to daily events, most of which aren't such a big deal. They still had access in the past to the really big issues because they were being written about, talked about, and once in a while it would actually lead to a real populist uprising when it was really, really important. Nowadays, that hardly happens, happens anymore. There is no real popular uprising until revolution strikes in 2050 or something like that. I mean, see here, I can't compare the today's popular uprisings against uh, the ones in the 1980s. But if I think about Black Lives Matter, um, that was for two months a huge popular uprising. And maybe I'm giving your, here your ammunition to your argument because it was then drowned out afterwards. Um, but I would say that's because, yes, it was drowned out, but also the elites had no more interest in picking the topic up. And also because we live in such a, I mean, the world is arguably more globalized than uh, in the 1980s. Um, so you simply have more problems. You have, it's not that you only have two or three big, big problems per week. You have 10 of them. Um so they, they are already competing for attention with each other. Then you also have all the useless stuff, what we already talked about. Um, but then you have uh, climate change, you have migration, you have Black Lives Matter, so the institutional racism you have to talk about. Um, then you have uh, poverty, now you have inflation, then you have a war on top of that. I mean, I feel like th that is not necessarily only because of technology, but simply because there's too many topics in general. And yeah. Well, so I, this is really interesting because this is something that I fully agree with in the sense that one of the criticisms that you can have with respect to the past and and so the pre when we say past we mean pre-internet era um just not a past long gone. which is an awful long time right the stone age was also <laughs> pre-internet era i remember it well dario i know you don't uh is is of course that there was a problem in the fact that some important stories, and I'm thinking of institutional racism, for example, institutional sexism, weren't picked up. Why? Because the elites consisted of white men, and they would not care about the experiences of black women, to give you an example, because it just wasn't on the radar screen, not because they were evil human beings, simply it wasn't relevant to their lives. So a improvement in that sense in 2023 is that that voice can be given to people who were literally voiceless in the past because they didn't, they didn't have representatives in the media and they didn't have representatives in politics. That's absolutely true. So it's not a, you know, literal black or white kind of argument that I'm making here. 
there are things that are clearly better in that sense. However, when you say there are way more problems, I think that in the past there were an equal amount of problems, some of which should have been highlighted more, but now we are making way too many things into major problems, drowning out the really, really important ones. So I just, stupid, st stupid number game, but if in the past five game, five issues a year were highlighted by the media, that was a problem because it should have been 20. Instead of five, five was too few, but now it's a thousand. And so rather than the 20 really important topics of which Black Lives Matter is a really good example, we've got way too many other stories, which means that politicians don't actually have to change because of Black Lives Matter or because of environmental um, activists. So Black Lives Matter, and you said this yourself, yes, they got attention, serious attention, but did they actually lead to a radical change in the way that the system, the institutions, the establishment deal with things? No, institutional racism is still a daily um, reality in the U.S. police force, well, probably also European police forces, but Black Lives Matter focuses on the United States, of course. Um, it, it, there hasn't been a radical policy shift when it comes to this. There have been a few cases that got a lot of attention, but still being an African-American man in cities in uh, the United States is a dangerous affair because, you know, you've got a racist police force going after you. Uh, the numbers haven't actually gone down when it comes to the uh, police, American police killing black people. Um, the same with the environment. So the environment has gotten attention, but not sufficiently, not as much as it should have. Why? Because there are way too many other stories. Institutional strength within democracy, the, the decline of democracy, the, 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 the thing that lots of people and our podcasts have talked about over and over again, the weakness of democracy, has that been dealt with? No, not at all. Why? Because there are too many other stories that are being covered and that people care about. They care about too many other things, which means that they cannot put sufficient pressure on the system. And the system, therefore, can sort of hide behind that. They no longer have an internal mechanism to correct themselves because whenever a journalist from the New York Times or The Guardian or whoever else, Le Monde, points out something, a politician can just rely on social media support to talk about other issues or to say, oh, but this journalist is just a liberal so-and-so. We shouldn't take them seriously. And so there's no longer an internal conversation to correct the, the very severe problems our society faces. And as a result, we're sleepwalking into a dystopian future. So let's say Elon Musk um, writes a bad code and accidentally blows up all social media platforms. There's no longer a chance to, we have to go back to ICQ and all of that where politics wasn't, wasn't a thing yet. So all of a sudden we can still use the internet, but there's no social media networks and we don't have the chance to be angry at each other and at everyone else. Um, all day long on the internet. Would this be better? In what ways? Well, it would certainly, I, I mean, not straight away, I guess, because we're so, so now mentally attuned to having our opinion matter. You know, we all believe that somehow our opinion is is key to the world and we should, we should, we should share our opinion with everyone else. Um, 
But over the long term, what it would lead to is an establishment that needs to have a conversation with itself again and that needs to be held responsible for its actions. An establishment that actually can afterwards be voted out of office based on their actions. Your country has been doing badly over the past 10 years. The voters are going to vote you out because the voters see that the country has been doing badly. You cannot hide behind social media games. You cannot hide behind um, the, the, the tone surrounding Brexit, for example. You know, Brexit is a really good example of something that would not have happened in the 1970s or 1980s. In fact, the opposite happened. It was the elite, kind of against the will of the people, introducing the UK into the European Union. Britain followed, and it was really good for Britain. Economically, culturally, politically, geopolitically, it was that was an elitist experiment that actually worked out really, really well. Until the people said, no, 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 we feel wrong about this. We feel bad about this. We are going to take action against it. We're going to take us out of the European Union with the horrific consequences that that entails. So in that scenario with Elon Musk uh, messing, messing up social media, that scenario would lead to us slowly over time going back to a world where people in the street don't have 24-hour opinions and anger issues with respect to everything they hear all the time. They get on with their lives. And once every four years, they will vote politicians in or out depending on their long-term track record. And they will, will read the newspaper in the mornings to check once in a while how um, journalists are assessing the situation. Would, do you think that the elites and the establishment would continue to diversify? Because I, I feel like that's one of the big achievements of technology and the internet is that after Black Lives Matter, you had a lot of academic discussion on that topic. It allowed for a lot of room for, um, for, for black academics to write about these ideas and to, to bring up these topics and to start developing an intellectual elite that could then participate in that elite, well, if I say in that elitist process, but in that almost technocratic uh, way way of, of conducting uh, democracy, um, do you think that that would still happen, or that I feel like I feel like if you go back to a time without the internet, I'm not sure whether um, these circles would have been broken up as quickly as they have been now. No, I, I think that is fair in itself, and that's as I said before. I think that's a very good point. That what has been possible in the 21st century is breaking through that white male dominated elite system and and that probably would not have been possible without technology without I, I completely follow you there now take that a step further though so yes there's more diversification not enough yet but there is more diversification because of technology um, to put it simply there are more women in parliament than there were before there were more um, minorities in parliament than there were before than there were before which in itself is a good thing but given that those parliaments and governments and leadership establishment circles actually are not necessarily responding to the needs of the people, does it actually matter that much? Yes, it looks good on a picture because it's more representative of society, but are they actually having, does the diversification have an actual real impact on, on policymaking? And I would argue that given that that policymaking is much less dependent on who is in parliament nowadays and much more dependent on a few leaders using social media to push for their agendas. Um, 
I actually think it's mostly window dressing. It's it's not like they ask ask the average African American in the United States whether their lives have gotten better over the past twenty years, and the answer is no. Despite them having more representatives in Congress, why is that? Because Congress doesn't actually have to deal with those issues. Now getting to the end of this conversation, that I mean, I definitely understand your viewpoint better. Um, I I think I I tend to agree that uh, overall important discussions are being drowned out by the overall, you know, just the magnitude of how much is happening on social media and how much useless stuff we have to deal with every every single day. Um, I mean, I, I can think of many examples that kind of support your thesis. I can think of many examples that would uh, speak against it, which is kind of in line with us. I mean, with us having having this podcast and there's, uh, I mean, there's so many aspects of technology that we haven't brought up. I mean, open source intelligence. Uh, so how does that influence policy making? Um, again, just maybe an increased accountability because there's more traceability of, of all types of actions uh, that are happening there. Um, I'm still not entirely uh, convinced whether the world would be so much better if we were to go back to that old model. So like what happens if Elon Musk inserts some, some bad code? Um, but I think that this was definitely an, an interesting uh, experiment uh, we did here and an interesting episode. So I, I definitely invite uh, all of the listeners to share their thoughts on this topic. Maybe we forgot some of the aspects. Maybe you completely disagree or agree uh, with our thoughts. And uh, I think that this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the impact of technology on policy making, as always. And as I just said, if you have any questions, comments, or regards on this new format or on this topic, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com, and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Who knows? Maybe we will record another episode on this topic. Uh, maybe we will have had more conversations on this and maybe a few more formulated theses. Uh, on this. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, does the quote for today reflect our conversation? Well, absolutely, Dario, because I saw this kind of thing coming, of course. So I got a quote from a French 19th century essayist who I personally didn't know, uh, Joseph Joubert, who wrote, it is better to debate a question without settling it than to settle a question without debating it.